um, Ron's. So, Acts chapter 9, meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. He spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. What an amazing, amazing part of Scripture. And um, it details uh, the events that led to the Pharisee Saul becoming the Apostle Paul. He was the arch enemy of the Christian faith, yet he meets with Jesus on the road to Damascus. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, how did you start your great missionary career? He would say, on the run. He would be pursued. 
for the rest of his life. On the way to Damascus, he met with Jesus. There was a light from heaven. There was a voice from heaven that called him by name, Saul, Saul. And from that moment becomes one of the most remarkable turnarounds in history ever. You notice that Jesus says, why do you persecute me? When the church is persecuted, it's Jesus who is being persecuted. It's Jesus that people hate. And they take out that hatred on those who follow Jesus. Just a little bit of the background to this passage. Damascus was one of the oldest cities in the world. It lies some 135 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Probably, we don't know for sure, it had taken Saul six days traveling to get to Damascus. And here in uh, Acts 9, verse 2, it's the first time in the book that the followers of Jesus are described as belonging to the way. The way. That was the first description given to followers of Jesus. And uh, before they became nicknamed Christians, which happens in Acts chapter 11 in Antioch. And in Damascus, there's a, a believer called Ananias, and uh, he is instructed to visit Saul. And did you notice the exact coordinates that he's given? I mean, you, if you're asking for, for wisdom or direction from God, you can't get much more directive than this. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. There's a man called Saul from Tarsus. He's praying, and I've already told him you're coming. That's better than any sat-nav, isn't it? I uh, met someone recently. Where it was in my time in Lebanon with Open Doors. Uh, someone who had actually gone uh, into uh, Syria a few years ago. And there is a church on Straight Street. And he had the privilege of preaching at the church on Straight Street. I asked him, what did you preach about? He said, what do you think I preached about? I wanted to say, I think they've probably heard that sermon about a hundred and whatever times. What should, we, what should we preach? We're in Straight Street in Damascus. There's... Something of the, the time difference. We'd always pick it up from the Acts of the Apostles, of the exact timing of the things that happened to, to Paul. We're, we're told in various other accounts that he spent time in Arabia after his conversion. Arabia doesn't mean the Arabian Peninsula as we know it now. In those days, it would be the Syrian Arabia of the Nabataean Kingdom, Nabataean Kingdom, which stretched from Damascus down to the Dead Sea. And Aretas was the king over that area. So Luke's account compresses a couple of years between those verses 22 and 23 when he says after many days had gone by. It gives the impression all this happened at once. We're not sure that it did because of a couple of other passages of Scripture. In Galatians um, chapter 1, verse 17, following Paul's conversion, he gives an account of his conversion. Then he says, I didn't immediately go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Okay? Three years before he went down to Jerusalem... 
And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32, 33. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas, that king of Syrian Arabia, had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. So those scriptures combined tell us that Paul was converted, yes, on the road to Damascus. And he preached in the synagogues. And then he went to Arabia, maybe for two, three years. And then he returned back to Damascus and continued that ministry and then was lowered in the basket at that time. Why do we think that? It's because, yes, he had opposition within Damascus, but when we're told in Corinthians that actually King Aretas has surrounded Damascus, he had made enemies among the Arabian kingdom as well. So they're waiting for him outside of Damascus. He has Jews as enemies inside Damascus, and he's lowered outside. That's why we think that that timescale is slightly different. If I've confused you completely, See me afterwards, I'll try and explain it to you. And that's why when it says that, just sort of that transition after many days had gone by, that, that phrase is quite vague. I want to just focus just a minute on Ananias before we watch Ron's video this morning. Ananias is one of those unsung heroes in the New Testament. This is the only time we hear of him in the New Testament, and the Lord calls him and gives him those instructions. He's an ordinary follower of Jesus, just like you and I. And sometimes we may ask, what can God do through me? I'm, I'm no Apostle Paul. I'm not going to go on these great missionary journeys. What can God do through me? Well, Ananias gives us just a picture of how God chooses to use ordinary men and women to do extraordinary things that releases something of God in the power of the Holy Spirit that has world-changing consequences. Ananias just belonged to Straight Street Baptist Church, just an ordinary member week by week. But we know that he's a faithful follower of Jesus. We know he has a warm, soft, and generous heart. Because he's, he's listening to God and he hears God say to him about, you know, this instruction to go and visit Saul. And uh, he listens. And then, like me, he has a few objections. I'm sure I would have said exactly the same. He enters into this little discussion with the Lord. Uh, Lord, don't you know who this man is? He's come here to arrest me and all my friends, your people. Uh, you may have got it wrong. That's kind of what he's saying, isn't it? It also tells us that he is a man who's committed to prayer, was full of the Holy Spirit. But the other wonderful thing about Ananias is that he's obedient to God's word. It's all right to come up with some objections and have a discussion with God. But at the end of the day, you're not going to win any argument with the Lord, are you? So he says, okay. 
the Lord says, go. And amazingly, as he goes to meet Saul, he calls him, did you notice as we read it? Brother. Brother Saul. Absolutely astonishing. He's part of the family. This man who had come to Damascus to arrest the believers is now part of the family. He calls him Brother Saul. That's how he greets this murderous persecutor because Jesus has touched his life. Ananias was faithful, obedient, trusted in the Lord, trusted in the Lord enough to go on this perilous mission. And through him, Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit as Ananias prays for him. He's healed of his blindness and he is baptized. What an amazing man of God Ananias is and was and a challenge to us. We may not be like the Apostle Paul. Maybe we are. Maybe there's someone here who's going to do extraordinary, amazing things for God. But we can all be like Ananias, faithful, obedient, full of the Holy Spirit, committed in prayer. Ron's going to share in his video about it being dangerous to know God. That through the conversion of Saul, who becomes Paul, Paul has changed sides. And he explains that as we who follow Jesus, we too may face persecution in one way or another. Can we watch the video? Imagine this scene. It's pitch black, dead of night. A man is levered out of a window into a four foot wide basket. It's maybe as high as 60 feet off the ground. It would be fatal if he fell. And the cane woolen basket creaks under the strain of his weight. It crashes into vines and bushes growing on the wall on the way down. Maybe it's making too much noise, thinks the man sitting in the basket. Am I going to get through this alive? Is this my last night? Will my pursuers hear? Are they waiting for me at the bottom? After an eternity through the darkness, the basket touches the ground and out leaps a balding man in his thirties. Freedom? Not really. He just scuttles away into the dark desert night. This is the Apostle Paul. This is going to be one of the most powerful men in history. And look at him, scuttling away into the night. The Apostle Paul never expected to make an exit like this in his life. He was the son of a wealthy merchant from a big city, brilliant at studies, connected at the highest levels of Jewish society a man of position and, and power. He had come to this city of Damascus with an ambassadorial status. He had a whole retinue of police and servants at his command, and in his bag, he carried letters of diplomatic immunity to conduct religious cleansing. And yet, here he is, knuckles white, 
as he grips the sides of the basket. He's no longer an ambassador, he's a fugitive. And see him scampering away into the night with nothing but his clothes. Oh, and a gospel recently discovered because Jesus had appeared to him in this city and transformed his life. Why is Paul in the basket at all? People are after him. He's on the run. And you can imagine him sitting in this basket saying, this God, he's dangerous to know. One moment I was heading for a glittering career as a rabbi, but now after encountering him, I'm on the run for my life. And the people that had educated Paul and commissioned him to persecute Christians have now turned on him because he's changed sides. There is a sense in which every Christian has changed sides. And that's where the trouble comes from. Because when we turn to Christ, we are pursued by a whole host of forces that didn't take much interest in us before. And the world in which we live is no longer a playground, it's a battleground. Who's after Paul? Well, the Jewish leaders in Damascus, they're very annoyed because he's come to the synagogues, he's preached the gospel, and they weren't able to answer him. And they're jealous and they're mad. And so they're after him, they're gonna silence him. It doesn't help, of course, that he's got a bit of a, bit of a history. This is the city he was supposed to come to and get rid of the Christians. And here he is speaking on behalf of the Christians, how galling for them. And there's another group that's after him too, because when Paul's talking about this incident later uh, to the Corinthians, he says that actually guards were waiting for him outside the city, the guards of the King of Arabia, King Aretas. And this is probably because he tells us in Galatians that early on he went to Damascus, encountered Christ, and then he left Damascus and went into Arabia for three years. And then he came back to Damascus. So something happened in Arabia to annoy the king and pursue Paul. Probably Paul was preaching. He usually was. And everywhere he preached, he got into trouble. So it seems that King Aretas has his guards outside the city because King Aretas's writ did not run into Damascus. Paul is getting it from both angles. Inside the city, the religious leaders are after his neck. Outside the city, the guards from a king are waiting to arrest him. All because he has an incendiary gospel. And so Paul learns early on that the life of faith involves being pursued and he was to be on the run for the rest of his life. This God is dangerous to know. And that's the meaning of the word persecution. It just means to be pursued, it's a verb. So we all sit in the basket with Paul. Something or someone is always after us, not because of who we are, but because of Christ in us. The great New Testament scholar, William Barclay, once said that a New Testament Christian has three characteristics. One, they were absurdly happy. Two, they were filled with an irrational love for their enemies. Three, they were always in trouble, always in trouble 
That's the default setting for any Christian. And Paul is to write later in his ministry that he expects every Christian to experience this pursuit. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he says, will be persecuted. In 2 Timothy, he writes that. So who's after you? Who's after me? If we sit in the basket with Paul, we have to ask, if Christ has enemies, then so must I. Sometimes the battle comes to us, but sometimes we have to take the battle to the enemy. Paul wasn't having to flee because he was a Christian. Paul was fleeing because he was a witnessing Christian. And we need to remember this. Jesus said, love your enemies. But he didn't say, don't make any. When you sit in the basket with Paul, you're always gripping the sides and saying, who's after me? Who's after me? Somebody should be. We all should be in that basket at some point. And if someone isn't, we need to gently ask ourselves, why not? There was a preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who once said, the devil doesn't waste his time flogging a dead horse. And the persecuted of the world will testify that when you experience that pursuit, strangely, you will count it as your greatest honor. Maybe it's time to get back into the basket with Paul and ask, who's after me? We're coming to the end of our time together. We're going to ask the band to come back as we prepare to sing a final song, but it'd be good just to pray uh, together and to pray especially for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted. So let's just pray together.